Welcome to episode six. This time we are going to talk about an event that kind of gets uh, short shrift in history. Uh, in the 1920s, we're talking about prohibition and flappers and uh, Al Capone and the stock market crash. And then in the 1930s, we're dominated by stories about the Great Depression, as it should be. But on that backdrop, there was also this long-term ecological human disaster known as the Dust Bowl. Lasted for the better part of a decade and uh, rearranged the population of the United States, as well as taught us a valuable lesson about land stewardship and how the government could get involved to actually restore land. Anyway, if I back up into the 1920s, something was happening on the Great Plains. States like Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado, bits of Nebraska and Kansas and New Mexico, where there hadn't necessarily been a lot of farming yet. The land had been relatively recently settled, and out comes this nifty new invention called the mechanical tractor. Now, the soil in this area of the Great Plains had built up over thousands and thousands of years, basically because of buffalo migration. Millions of buffalo that headed north and south and very slowly built up a topsoil. And it was beautiful soil. It, it grew things really well. But it, it was based in this thick sod as well. The, the grasslands that they had eaten and trampled and eaten and trampled and eaten and trampled for decades. So what happens is this new mechanical tractor, a sod buster it was called, would charge farmers a small fee to tear up the sod and reveal the beautiful topsoil underneath so that they could plant wheat. And because it was a mechanical tractor that ran on gasoline, it was fairly cheap to operate. And so someone coming out to get cheap farmland in the West could have the, the sod removed and plant a wheat farm almost immediately and the same year have a harvest. And so thousands and thousands and thousands of people did exactly that and millions of acres of sod were removed. So the first lesson here is that the Dust Bowl was a man-made disaster. This did not have to happen, but we got extremely greedy and short-sighted and uh, forgot about how powerful nature can be. And so the sod was torn up, the wheat was planted, um, way too much wheat as it turned out. And so there was a huge oversupply starting about World War I and lasting all through the 1920s. It got to the point where you couldn't even sell the wheat for enough to cover what it had cost you to plant it and to grow it and cultivate. And so even some wheat farmers were like, it doesn't make any sense to sell, I'm just dumping it. And yet all of this land was still exposed. So as farms started to fail and people had their, their farms foreclosed on, moved away and left the topsoil naked. And then another thing happened. In the late 20s, there started a period of drought. About 1928-29, the rainfall started to diminish in this area. And by 1930, it was in severe drought. And it was a drought that was going to last for seven years. And so now there was no moisture to hold the exposed topsoil together. And now you can see what's going to happen. So along comes these ordinary Great Plains windstorms. Right? There's lots of tornadoes on the Great Plains, and there's lots of wind turbines out there. So these windstorms would start up in the Rockies, cold air up above, sinking down to the bottom, these large windstorms. And uh, they would gather steam as they went along. They would literally pick up topsoil and start to move it across state lines. Now, you have never experienced anything like this, nor have I. 
I'm sitting on my second, the second floor of my house looking out the window at a beautiful uh, February day. It's sunny and blue and clear. And there would be those days on the Great Plains during the Dust Bowl when everything looked like a perfect day and then out of nowhere along the horizon came a gigantic wall of dust. It's almost hard to picture in your mind. So the people that live there, many of them having land for the very first time in their lives, were very determined to stay. They had a lot of gumption. They had a lot of, of persistence. And so they endured. They figured out ways to adapt to these storms, but they were horrific. They were nightmarish. They were deadly. And many, many people still stuck around. So how to describe to you what this was like through a podcast? Let me try. Let me try to be the storyteller here. There were two small towns in Kansas, and uh, there were friends in these towns. They were about 30 miles apart, and uh, the two telegraph operators in that town had worked out a system where most of the storms came from the northwest, and so the guy in the northwestern town would send a telegraph message to the guy down below so they would have some warning time, kind of an early warning system. Well, in one particular storm, the worst that it ever got in the, in the, in the Dust Bowl, that was in 1935. Uh, they call it Black Sunday. Just the worst storm that anyone ever endured. And they were going through their normal paces and they were talking about back and forth, sending messages. And uh, there had already been word that a storm was coming out of the Northwest. And so the guy sent a telegram saying, hey, make sure you give me a heads up. He said, no problem. Of course I will. And the warning came through, but it wasn't like any other warning he had ever gotten. The warning that came through along the telegraph was three words. Oh my God. And there was nothing else out of that town after that. Now the town survived, but can you imagine receiving that message from your friend who has warned you before? You've been through these dust storms together before, and his warning to you is, Oh my God. People would tie rope and strings from their house to their barn or from their house to their garden so that if out of nowhere a dust storm suddenly appeared, as happened, and they got trapped and disoriented and had no idea how to get back to the house, even if it was only a hundred feet away. They would grab for the rope and they would hand over hand, follow themselves back to the house and to something like safety. Remember, these were all 1920s houses. They were hand-built, most of them, uh, not insulated, not super good sense homes like you would have today. And so there were cracks and gaps and so even when you got inside the house, there was still a lot of dust coming through. You could hold up a candle and see the cloud of dust particles just floating through. Women would take the sheets off the bed and wet them down in the bathtub and then tack them up over the windows so that they would catch some of the dust. And by the end of a storm, they would be black. There was so much static electricity in these storms just so much static that as the cloud came towards people, it was fronted by multiple lightning strikes and had to look like hell itself. When the wind would start to blow across a plantation that had this, this dust electricity, the static in it, the metal barbed wire of the fences that you had holding your cows in would start to glow blue right around the, the barbs themselves because so much static electricity was collecting through the metal. People reported that in their gardens where they had watermelons that had grown, 
that because there was water in it, the static lightning was drawn to the watermelons and they would come out after a storm to find the watermelons black. Just horrific. Public schools during the storms, you had your kids in school that day and the dust storm came, you're stuck. Modern day, or or the the 1920s version of a a lockdown. You can't leave because it's deadly out there. We have no way to get you home. You're staying in the school. And sometimes that would be for 12, 18, 36 hours. The schools themselves became Red Cross wards where people who had dust particles that had collected in their lungs, like a coal mine or black lung, where they had hospital wards impromptu set up in some of the gymnasiums of these public schools. All of this caused so much agricultural and economic dislocation that 2.5 million people were going to leave. 2.5 million people just said, oh, it's over. We can't stay here. We have to go. And many of them got on the highway in the Model T that they owned with everything left that they owned, and they just drove west looking for some kind of work deeply in debt without a penny to their name, hungry. Uh, Many of them went all the way to California along Route 66. And they got the nickname Okies, no matter where they had come from. And the the avalanche of people coming into California caused like an anti-immigrant fervor. How weird is that? They're Americans moving west, but Californians didn't want them. They had their own issues during the Great Depression, and they didn't want more unemployed people pouring into the state. They even put up signs right along the border saying, Okie's not welcome. Steinbeck, of course, writes his Grapes of Wrath about this time period. Um, the, The folk singer Woody Guthrie wrote a song called Dusty Old Dust right about the, the Dust Bowl because he was in it and would be one of those people who moved west. That song, uh, well, it's a, a hit and a classic, is more well-known as So Long It's Been Good to Know Ya. This did kill people, of course, and it was hard even sometimes to have funerals. So there was a story of a funeral procession with a long line of Model Ts that was headed towards the cemetery, and, uh, and a dust storm came out of nowhere and trapped everybody in their cars and killed one of the people inside the cars on the way to a funeral. Tragedy just steeped upon tragedy. You would have to drag a logging chain behind the axle, the rear axle of your Model T, to ground your car. Otherwise, the lightning would disable your car. Again, these stories that you just can't quite put your your, your mind around. It was going to end. Uh, At some point, everybody realized how bad this had gotten when the dust storm started to hit Washington, D.C., and they passed the Soil Conservation Act later that year. That allowed for the planting of windbreaks, millions and millions of trees, soil conservation efforts, crop rotation, all sorts of common sense measures that took time, but by about 1940, the area had mostly recovered. The damage had been done, but government interaction actually helped to repair the environment. Now, I cannot do nearly the justice to the story as a man named Timothy Egan He wrote a book called The Worst Hard Time, and it's fantastic on this subject. That's where some of my stories come from, and uh, I highly urge all of you to read it. Thank you for being a part of this podcast.